0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 163 for the first half of September of 2017. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Modern Eclipse Lunacy, Part 1. First of all, I'm back. More on that after the main segment. Second, with a topic like this, I know that some of you are probably thinking, what is he doing? The Eclipse is over, and lots of other skeptical podcasts have already talked about Eclipse myths. What new thing could Dr. Stu possibly add to this entire discussion? Well, my response to that question is that you should never underestimate humans' capacity to be stupid. Or, to recompose myself, since I do tend to pride myself in generally being Somewhat even-handed, you should never underestimate humans' capacity to read into patterns, to make patterns up, or to use things that are rare to promote their own pet ideas and be subject to confirmation bias. But more on that in a moment. I first want to talk about the solar eclipse that just happened a little over a week or two ago as this episode goes out. Branded by some as the Great American Eclipse because it passed across the entire continental United States and pretty much everyone in North America and Central America and even some of South America could see at least a partial eclipse, the eclipse probably got more hype than any other eclipse in history simply because of how accessible it was to so many people. It had been on my calendar since about 2009, and I drove to Wyoming to see it. It was my first total solar eclipse, and, well, to be honest, it was pretty awesome. Seriously, if you have the ability to go see a total solar eclipse in the future, do it. Even 99% totality is nothing like 100% totality. On the Facebook page for the podcast, Paul described it as the greatest event in his life. I personally wouldn't quite describe it as the greatest event in my life, being born might qualify, uh, but it is definitely up there as one of the neatest things that I've ever seen. For me, it was probably better than when we got the green beacon back from New Horizons that it survived its encounter with Pluto. Being a bit of a shutterbug, I took lots of photos, and while I'm still processing them all, I posted some of my best ones on the Facebook page for the podcast, and it's also the image on the blog page for this episode. Having now seen it, I can also understand how and why ancient civilizations who did not understand the celestial mechanics behind it could be scared by the event and think that it was a harbinger of doom or destruction or tweet storms or YouTube comment sections and other unpleasant things. Without looking at the sun, you really don't notice any change until the sun is at least half covered by the moon. I didn't notice the landscape getting darker until the sun was maybe 80% covered, but my faithful traveling companion said that he thought it was starting to get darker when it was about 60% covered. But then, as the last few percent of the sun goes behind the moon, it gets much darker. Twilight-level darkness. Being in Wyoming, we heard cows mooing, we saw two flocks of birds that took off and flew around in circles, And although I didn't notice a temperature drop, I heard from a lot of other people that the temperature did drop. Other stars and planets were also visible for a few minutes, and literally, you could see a big black splotch covering the sun, which looks as though it's emitting its last gasps of glowage from around the blackness before being eaten up, and streamers are shooting off from it that you've never seen before, but in today's CGI world would probably be in the realm of an energy being, uh, an alien energy being trying to escape from the blackness of the sun, or the blackness of the black to safety but then just about 2 minutes later or 2 minutes and 28 seconds where i was the bright disk of the sun reemerges and things start to return to normal That two and a half minutes is just enough time to bang your pots and pans together to try to scare off the demons or pray to your deity of choice or various other things. And so it's almost this uh, regression to the mean, where things start to get back to normal after you do this ritual that makes you think that whatever you did, it got things to work. That is, of course, assuming that you don't know the actual celestial mechanics of things that are really going on. That said, everything was sort of back to normal except for traffic. It took me 11 hours to get home instead of 3 and 3 quarters. So, with all that said, I can understand why ancient people who didn't know what was going on would be worried. What I don't quite understand, or maybe begrudgingly Do understand, but I'm still surprisingly surprised by it. Is that in today's society we still have people who use the eclipse for their own particular brand of pseudoscience? Now, as I said a few minutes ago, plenty of other podcasts have done eclipse myths episodes in the last month or so. uh, Skeptoid and the Reality Check being two that I listened to. I'm not going to cover much of anything that they did. Instead. I'm going to discuss some more of the fringe stuff that's been bandied about on paranormal late-night radio programs and other venues. This is also a good topic to return from from the uh, summer of 2017 hiatus because I'm going to lean heavily on topics that I've already covered before, such as astrology and syzygy earthquakes. This is also a part one because, now I know it's hard to believe, There's a lot of different brands of crazy out there with respect to this eclipse. The first topic that I'm going to talk about, though, is really no laughing matter. And despite pretty much every single outlet telling people not to look directly at the sun, people still did it, including a particularly famous person who lives in Washington, D.C., who already has an odd sort of skin coloration. But seriously, don't look at the sun. While you won't go blind if you just sort of glance at the sun without eye protection, you can pretty easily do permanent damage to your eyes if you look at the sun for any longer than pretty much the briefest of glances. But from not wearing any eye protection to trying to get eye protection, people still miss the mark. In the week after the eclipse, people were showing up to emergency rooms in California with eye problems because they put sunscreen in their eyes, thinking that it was going to let them look at the eclipse. And no, I'm not joking, I wish I were. Although, there is a slight asterisk on that sentence that I'll get to in a moment. Uh, Yes, Pat, asterisk. The thinking was likely that the product says sunscreen, so it should protect my eyes if I look at the sun. This is, of course, despite the product label saying that you should not ingest it nor get it in your eyes. With that said, this comes from, and here's the asterisk, this comes from one report and it is entirely possible that it's not true. Uh, Some people are claiming that it is a hoax, but from people not listening to the advice of, well pretty much everyone, and not wearing eye protection, to people wearing the wrong kind of eye protection, scammers tried to cash in on the eclipse, too. In the weeks leading up to the eclipse, numerous stories hit the news about glasses that claimed to be suitable for viewing the sun, but were, in fact, not. They were not dark enough and could cause serious damage if used. Part of the issue for eye damage with the sun is that your retina does not contain pain receptors, so it will happily burn away while you feel no pain. And so, in this first and briefest of subtopics of modern eclipse myths, the fact is that looking for any prolonged period of time at the sun's disk without protection can and almost certainly will cause eye damage, but we have people not believing it We have people using products, probably, fairly stupidly to try to protect their eyes, and then we have the seedy underbelly of civilization trying to profit from selling products that, if used as directed, will cause harm. With all of that in mind, what you can do during a total solar eclipse is look at the sun without eye protection. That's only during the totality part. What's visible when the moon is blocking out the sun's photosphere is the solar corona, which is many, many orders of magnitude fainter than the photosphere, or the disk, of the sun. The outer parts of the corona, which I captured in exposures of around one second, based on some rough math with my filters and other camera settings, were around 10 to 40 million, with an M, times fainter than the disk of the sun. That's really faint although still kind of bright, uh, but it is something that you can look at without eye protection. So moving on, or perhaps moving back, we have the idea that eclipses are signs in the heavens that your deity of choice is mad at you, or is going to cause something bad to happen, or is warning you that something bad is going to happen. I don't want to talk too much about this because it gets really specifically into that ancient stuff that I said I wasn't going to talk about, but there is one person who deserves mention here, and that's Mark Biltz. Mark Biltz is the founder of El Shaddai Ministries in Washington State, and you may remember him from the whole Blood Moons thing from a few years ago. I'll refer you to episode 85 for a lot more about him, and also episode 131. Back then, I pointed out that if you wanted to put it as kindly as possible, and perhaps as politely as possible, and perhaps as legally defensible as possible, Howard, built sort of bent the truth and the facts to fit his narrative. He hid his previous statements when they were shown to be clearly wrong or exaggerations, and he made much ado about nothing. On April 11th of 2017, he was on Coast to Coast AM, He was doing the exact same thing, except this time it was with the total solar eclipse of August 2017, rather than four lunar eclipses spanning two years. In the interview, he claimed that we will see major wars break out, that they will definitely involve Israel, and they would potentially involve Syria, North Korea, Russia, and the United States. Odd that he happens to mention four countries who are, well, I won't say at the brink of war, but are posturing at least, and, well, Syria is kind of in a in a hole, we'll say. While it's too early to say if any war will actually break out in the next year, he also stated that total solar eclipses marked the end and the beginning of World War I. That's something that's really, really easy to check. Keep in mind that solar eclipses... Can happen twice per year and often happen at least once per year, even if they're not total solar eclipses. World War I is generally agreed to have started on July 28th of 1914, and it generally is agreed to have ended on November 11th of 1918. There was a total solar eclipse in 1914, but it was a month later, August 21st. So, No, a total solar eclipse did not mark the start of World War I, it marked the 24th day of it. I don't know why that's important. Similarly, there was a total solar eclipse in 1918, but it was on June 8th, and it crossed the United States, not Europe. That was five months before the end of World War I. There was an annular eclipse on December 3rd of that year, which was much closer to November 11th, so I'm not quite sure why he didn't highlight that, but an annular is not nearly as impressive as a total, now I can say that having seen both. More evidence that he cherry-picked stuff and just sort of went along with a high-probability hit is that in a World Net Daily article discussing his August 2017 eclipse statements, He claimed various things happening on the first of the Hebrew calendars month of Elul and the April 8th, 2024 eclipse that will also cross the United States happening on the anniversary of the dedication of the Moses tabernacle. Okay, fine. Uh, But keep in mind a few things here when you're trying to relate sort of uh, important things in the Jewish religion to solar and lunar eclipses and, well, months in the Hebrew calendar. Two things need to be remembered in particular. First, as I discussed in episode 85, the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar, meaning that the first of every month must be a new moon, meaning that you can only have a solar eclipse on the first of the month. So it's no surprise that any solar eclipse will happen, in fact, it has to happen, on the first of the month of any given Jewish calendar or Hebrew calendar month. The second thing to remember is that there's a lot of stuff that's happened that people give varying levels of importance to in the rather ancient Jewish religion. Just as there's a saint for every day in the Catholic religion, you can find something important that did happen, or is claimed to have happened, on pretty much every day of the Hebrew calendar. More so if it's the 1st, the 8th, the 15th or 16th or around the 24th as those tend to coincide with imp- well they don't tend to they do coincide with important phases of the moon so i can end this segment pretty much as i did with episode 85 having shown again that mark Biltz is in my opinion bilking the public by milking the eclipse with a high probability event prediction or events that no one will remember that he claimed and predictions that he may may possibly, even try to erase from the internet if they don't happen. Next up, astrology. I listened to what several astrologers claimed would happen with the eclipse, and to be perfectly honest, it was so much of the same that I could barely pay attention. Granted, I was also processing my eclipse photos, so that might have had something to do with it. Basically, they claimed all sorts of things. They said the eclipse is good for people, and then some astrologers said the eclipse is bad for people. They said that it only affects people in the path of totality, and then others would say that it affects everyone who can see any part of it, and then some people said that it can affect anyone in the world, that it's on the whole world's natal chart or something like that. No astrologer that I listened to said the same thing, and it was all just as vague as astrologers tend to be. So, I wrote absolutely nothing down, except from Mark Lerner, who's a favorite of George Norrie's based on how often Mark is on. Uh, Again, we're talking about Coast to Coast AM for those of you who might be new to the show. Mark claimed three things in particular. One that's vague, one that I know didn't happen based on anecdotes, and one that I know didn't happen based on recorded history. The first is that he said various calamities could not would, but could, happen because Mars reaches the eclipse point of the sky a few days after the eclipse, and Mars is activated by the planet Mercury. As with any prediction set, calamity could happen is about as useful as homeopathy. He also claimed that Mercury would be in retrograde during the eclipse, and when Mercury's in retrograde, that means electronic devices won't work. I know from personal experience that this was not an issue during the Eclipse because every single piece of electronics that I was using operated just fine. Uh, That includes four cameras, a drone, a tablet, an iPod, an iPad, and a car. Yes, I did have quite a bit of equipment. And the third thing is that he claimed that the stock market could be affected by the Eclipse with lots of panic at buying and selling, which didn't happen. In my book, when these claimed psychics or generic prognosticators say the word could, I convert that to will. Otherwise, there's absolutely no way to pin them down because they always could get an out with their predictions by just using that wiggle word. Some people, though, do make it a little bit easier for me and come right out and say something will happen. On August 6th of 2017, Elizabeth Joyce was on Coast to Coast AM. She claims to be a psychic and energetic healer. She also claims to have a, quote, remarkable track record for predictions, end quote. I don't know if it's just, uh, you know, that it's remarkable because it's good or remarkable that it's bad, uh, but she stated that the eclipse would cause, would cause a massive earthquake in the Mississippi Valley. Now, first off, The Mississippi Valley isn't really a thing, as opposed to, for example, the Ohio River Valley, which is where I grew up. Second, it didn't happen anyway, as in a major earthquake did not happen near the Mississippi state area during nor within a few days of the eclipse, nor really did any major earthquake happen in the United States on or during or near to the solar eclipse. Next in a quick segment are earthquakes. It kind of goes together. See, I, I do try to have decent transitions here. Anyway, this was really kind of the same as astrology, pretty much. The main person to whom I listened for Earthquakes was to John Hogue, also a favorite on Coast Coast AM, and he is a claimed Nostradamus scholar and psychic in his own right, and fortunately, thoroughly debunked in an episode of Penn and Teller's show about uh, Taurus excrement, we'll just say. Hogue did what skeptics and listeners to this show should pretty much be familiar with by this point. He cherry-picked a few events, drew temporal correlations, and then said that correlation means causation. In particular, he drew a correlation between the eclipse that passed over much of Europe on August 11th of 1999 and a devastating earthquake that occurred in Turkey just six days later. That earthquake was a magnitude 7.4 and killed an estimated 17,127 people, making it the deadliest earthquake of the decade. However, it was, uh, well, by no means the largest earthquake of the decade, for just one month later, there was a 7.7 magnitude quake in Taiwan, A year later, a 7.9 quake in Sumatra. A decade before, a magnitude 6.8 quake that happened in Armenia, killing an estimated 25,000 people. But in 1990, in Iran, there was just a 7.4 earthquake that killed an estimated 40,000 people. None of these happened near, neither temporally nor geographically, a total solar eclipse. Ignoring facts, he then went on to claim that his cherry-picked correlations would mean that large earthquakes will happen across the New Madrid Fault in the Yellowstone Caldera and or in the Cascadia Subduction Zone, and that the earthquake, or earthquakes, plural, could happen any time between 8 and 18, drumroll please, months after the solar eclipse. So, Not only is he cherry-picking and using the correlation-equals-causation fallacy, but he did just what astrologers and other prognosticators often do, casting a huge net in time of well over a year such that he can claim any event, which is a reasonably high probability anyway, is going to be a hit for his prediction. More specifically, or perhaps more temporally constrained, Expat, a twice guest on this show tracked the predictions of Robert Morningstar, who also predicted that the eclipse would cause earthquakes over the New Madrid fault system in the middle of the United States, and he said this would happen within 36 hours of totality. As Expat showed in his blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes, this prediction, as with all of Robert Morningstar's predictions, also failed. Uh, just a side note about Robert Morningstar, he's uh, an interesting character who, in some cases, is so far out there that he was actually thrown off of Richard Hoagland's radio show. Yeah. Okay, so uh, moving on with that gratuitous side note put to the side, in true pseudo scientific fashion, Morningstar claimed his predictions came true. How, you might ask? I know I did. Well, there were earthquakes in the Philippines and Indonesia three days later. Okay, Uh, remember, he said that it would be within 1.5 days, 36 hours, in the middle of the United States. He also claimed a hit because there was a small series of earthquakes, or a series of small earthquakes, in the San Andreas Fault System, Uh, the one in California, which for those of you who are not familiar with the geography of the United States, California is on the western edge of the continental United States, not in the middle. Now, with California in particular, it would be surprising if an earthquake didn't happen. So before I move on to the next topic, there is a potentially real reason to expect increased earthquakes during a new moon or a full moon, and that's due to syzygy, a very high-scoring word in Scrabble. Syzygy, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, for those of you who want to play it in Scrabble, is when astronomical objects line up, which happens during new and full moons between the sun, moon, and earth, Uh, not necessarily in that order. But as I explored in episode 50, we've actually looked to see if there's any statistical increase in earthquake events during Syzygy, and the answer is no. A very quick mention should go to Planet X, or Planet X proponents perhaps. Marshall Masters, of whom I've now addressed in both episode 109 and 146, and shown that he repeatedly failed in his predictions— Used the eclipse during his coast to coast AM appearance on August 7th to claim that people may be able to see Planet X in the sky when the sun is blocked out by the moon. I haven't heard from him since that. He also did not make a specific prediction in the episode for when Planet X would come by. Uh, see episode 146 for more on that. In general, though, several people did report photographing Planet X during the eclipse. In all cases, It's very simple. Lens reflections. A camera lens itself is made up of multiple pieces of glass or plastic or other material. And even though they may have coatings on them to try to minimize reflections, reflections can and do still occur. I have camera lenses that cost, well, several thousand dollars US. And that means, now I didn't get ripped off, they have lots of coatings to try to minimize reflections. And they're really good at it. But when I point them at a bright light source, I can still get reflections. And if I put another piece of material in front of it, like if I'm shooting through a window because it's raining outside and I want to get lightning shots, then I'm going to get even more reflections. In that case, you have the sun, or the scene in general, coming through the window pane into the camera lens. And then when it hits the camera lens, it can bounce off of the camera lens back out of the lens and onto the window. The window can then reflect it back into the camera lens and so you can get a dual image. The same thing happens with the sun when shooting through eclipse glasses or welding material or other material. So the sun's light comes through the glasses into the camera lens. Some of that light will bounce off of some lens inside of the camera multiple lenses. It will bounce off that out of the camera lens Onto the piece of eclipse glasses material, and then some of that light that has bounced onto it is going to bounce back into the camera lens. Because you are almost never going to be perfectly, perfectly, perfectly lined up, that second reflection off of the eclipse glasses is going to be slightly offset from the original image of the sun. So, in your image, you're going to get the bright sun and then off to the side, a much fainter reflection of the sun, a.k.a. what a lot of people call Planet X. I actually experienced this using a kind of crappy camera lens back in the day uh, when I was photographing my first lunar eclipse as a kid in middle school. Uh, I was using my dad's camera. I had it on a tripod on the deck. I I had a trigger for the lens, you know, back in the day when everything was manual, not the lens, the camera body, uh, but back when everything was manual and I was changing out film cartridges and all that fun stuff, and I got a lot of UFOs near the moon. Basically, I got the moon nice and centered, but because something was slightly off and it was a cheapo lens, I got a reflection, a pretty severe reflection of the moon off to the side, and it was sort of a blue orb thing that turned into a crescent and then went away during totality and then came back. So this can happen, and it happens all the time. You just have to know what you're looking at. For the last subtopic of this part one episode, I move on to a particularly out there prediction about the eclipse. This comes from one Sean David Morton, An incredibly misogynistic man who is in the sovereign citizen movement and, after being convicted of several counts of fraud against the United States government, he went on the lam, and as I'm recording this, he was just picked up about two weeks ago by the U.S. Marshal Service and is now in jail. Uh, Both expat and I have been following his legal shenanigans for a while. But it was Art Bell back in the day who made Sean famous in the mid-1990s as a claimed psychic and during his several-month stint in hiding earlier this year when he was allegedly in Iceland, but actually probably just a few miles from his own house in California, uh, he went on Carrie Cassidy's YouTube channel to make more things up. Uh, Sorry for putting the cart a little bit before the horse on this one, but I honestly find the man pretty detestable, so it's hard for me to be somewhat neutral in my reporting of his claims, which were...
1: Look, I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know why. But NASA made an announcement that that they miscalculated the path of the eclipse. Well, because the path of the eclipse that runs across the entire width of the United States, now they're saying in the original calculations that instead of the eclipse line being here that they missed it between 70 to 90 miles, which means all these people that thought that they were going to be right underneath the eclipse and get the full totality of the eclipse are only going to get like 99.5% of it. Well, how can NASA do that? NASA (laughs) NASA has the projection. I mean, we've had them for years. I mean, since NASA was actually founded on my birthday, by the way, October 1st of 1958, Um, uh, uh, they've known where the sun is. They know where the moon is. They know where the Earth is. This, how can they miscalculate by as much as ninety miles the path of this eclipse
0: across the United States? I don't know. I want you know. Look, better minds than me should figure this out. After this, he proceeded to link this to drumroll again the Mandela effect. See episode one fifty five. CERN's Large Hadron Collider and something something quantum computer doing something something. See episode 64 for Quantum Nonsense, uh, repeating what we already heard from astrologers, planet Xers, and earthquake prognosticators that basically everything bad within two and a half years of the eclipse is because of the eclipse, uh, that it will pass over everything. Every single red state that voted for Trump, that's a quote, uh, clearly leaving things out like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Texas, Arizona, and many others, and ignoring Illinois, which went for Hillary. He also linked this to more astrology and earthquakes. Uh, He also related it to Edgar Cayce and the pole shift, not only just a geographic pole shift, but also a magnetic pole shift. See episode 25 for more on the magnetic pole shift. Hopefully, needless to say, none of those are real, and a magnetic pole shift would in no way affect the position of the sun, earth, and moon such that the eclipse path would be wrong. As with most other hucksters, Sean incorrectly conflated the magnetic and the geographic poles. Also, hopefully, needless to say, for all of you, and me, who saw the total solar eclipse, the eclipse path was correct. Now. What did shift from earlier predictions is the exact edge of the totality path. Earlier in 2017, like uh, February to March-ish, I remember seeing updated maps of the edge, and that's because the moon is not a perfect sphere. Neither is Earth. Uh, See episode 145 and feedback, I think, in episode 146 for more on that. Once you start to take into account that the moon's true limb is not perfectly smooth, as seen from Earth that day, and the distance from sea level to any given location during the totality along the totality path, um, the eclipse edge could be off by as much as half a mile. Half a mile, though, is not 70 to 90 miles. Think of it uh, this way, from the moon. Let's say that you have a massive gouge out of the limb of the moon. That gouge is not going to block any light from the sun. So if the sun would be visible from your location on Earth through that gouge, then you're not in the path of totality, even though you would be if the moon had a nice smooth limb. Or think of it this way for Earth. If you're on top of a mountain, you're going to be closer to the moon, and that means that you're going to be more inside the narrowing shadow cone that's cast onto Earth's surface, meaning that if you were just outside of the shadow zone before, you may now be inside of it because you're a bit closer to the moon than you would be if Earth were a perfect sphere without any bumps and wiggles. Another reason why the shadow path was not precisely correct is that the sun's diameter is slightly smaller than the value that was used in making most of the eclipse maps. The International Astronomical Union, like all bureaucratic bodies, can take a ridiculously long time to change their minds about something even if it's well obvious. In 1976, they approved a formal radius for the Sun of 696,000 kilometers or 432,500 miles. But it's actually 212 miles or about 342 kilometers smaller. The eclipse maps use the IAU, International Astronomical Union, size. But because the Sun is slightly smaller, the shadow zone is slightly larger. However, in the article that I read about this on phys.org, they were saying that the actual size of the sun is slightly larger than the IAU definition, depending on the wavelength of light, meaning that the shadow zone would be slightly smaller as opposed to slightly larger. But I looked at the IAU definitions, which I'll link to in the show notes, and I think that the phys.org article is actually wrong. But regardless, the point is that you should change numbers a tiny bit. And if you do, you're going to get a plus or minus eclipse width of about half a mile. Meaning that whenever you see a published eclipse map, don't be half-assed about it. Get as close to the center line as you can. Don't think that just a teeny tiny bit inside that edge is going to be great. Also, on the center line... You get more time in totality than you will on the edge, and when totality is lasting on the order of two to four minutes or so, uh, you kind of want as much time as you can get. With all of that said and done, we come to the wrap-up for this part one of this little mini-series. The Eclipse was really neat. It was also very much hyped. As with any such event that receives that kind of attention, pseudoscientists hawking their own brand of crazy are bound to come out of the woodwork and try to piggyback, to mix our metaphors, on the event to convince people to follow them. The eclipse, obviously, was no exception. With that in mind, there are at least two parts of this that I would like to address that I'm going to on a future episode. First is that of Flat Earth proponents, and perhaps of course... Richard C. Hoagland. To give you a bit of a taste, uh, flat Earth proponents tended to claim that it was not the moon that eclipsed the sun, but it was the Hindu god Rahu. I'm assuming that none of them tried to photograph the eclipse like I did and clearly saw the moon in front of the sun. Not that hard. Take a picture of the eclipse for one second. That'll do it. Anyway, uh, moving on, Richard Hoagland claimed lots of various things. Uh, perhaps the one that is closest to something that I've addressed before is that shadow bands that appear just before and just after the eclipse are caused, he claimed, by towering glass structures on the moon, in this case the limb of the moon, that the sun is filtering through and uh, that he's talked about for decades. More about both of those in a future episode. for announcements this time, uh, the only extra segment, uh, I guess I should answer the question of where have I been? I owe you at least uh, some explanation. Betwixt now and May, I have been in Seattle, Baltimore, Boulder for Meetings, Grand Rapids, Germany, Iceland, Flagstaff, and Wyoming. Um, Obviously the last one for the eclipse. All of those except for Germany and Iceland are in the United States. I've also been gone—not also, I have been gone—43 days out of the 123 for the past four months, which is not conducive to trying to put out a regular podcast episode, much less to do so while also getting my work done. What I may end up following is something that several other podcasts do, putting out um, so-called seasons. I'm hoping that I'm back to at least twice a month schedule from this point on for a while, but already I'm headed to Utah on September 7th, and I'll be gone for 10 days. So unless I can get another episode written and recorded, and then just push the button on Saturday night when I get back, the next episode isn't going to be until September 17th at the earliest. But we'll see. As I discussed in this episode when talking about astrology and claimed psychics, predicting the future is hard. Uh, but I do have numerous ideas for episodes that are just itching to get out, and there's just the problem of too few hours in the day and night. Don't forget, of course, that during this time you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can also find me on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo Astronomy, and me personally on Twitter as Doctor—that's D.R. Astro Stew—or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. I'm probably most active these days on the Facebook page. Um, The page also keeps teetering at 860 likes as people like it and then unlike it. I'm not entirely sure why people unlike a page. I've personally never unliked a page on Facebook except for uh, when someone added me to a page without my permission. Anyway. Oh, and before I go, a small correction. I know already. Uh, This is so that all of you who uh, emailed me after episode 85 calling me a bad Jew boy for not being able to pronounce certain months of the year can keep your emails to yourselves this time. I checked with my faithful traveling companion and I was slightly incorrect when I was talking about the Jewish or Hebrew calendar. It is based on a lunar calendar. It is still technically a lunar calendar, but it still sort of requires someone to visually cite the new moon. Sometimes I got conflicting reports on this. It might still do that, or some rabbinical council just might actually set things up as a certain way that sort of does this. Uh, And when they do that, they account for really not being able to see a teeny tiny sliver of a new moon. So this means that the last eclipse, the one on the 21st of August of 2017 under the calendar that most of the world uses, it was actually on the 29th of Av. And even in Israel, it was the beginning of the 30th of Av. So, Biltz was wrong again by saying that it was the first of Elul. And it's not only that, but the eclipse in the United States on, uh, or in April of 2024 is going to be on the 29th of Adar 2. Uh, apparently there are two months of Adar. There's Adar 1 and Adar 2. Um, although in Israel, it will be the first of Nissan. So, Biltz was wrong about pretty much every date that he mentioned, regardless of where you are in the world, and regardless of what calendar you're using, and regardless of what kind of eclipse you're talking about. I was correct in that, again, theoretically... The calendar is lunar, but things do float a bit because they haven't really gotten with the modern times of eh, maybe 5,000 years ago when even the ancient Sumerians were able to accurately know when the new moon was going to be, but that is a separate issue for a completely separate podcast. that wraps up this topic for the 160 No, 163rd. You put an and there. It implies a decimal point. Thank you, sixth grade English teacher, uh, edition of the Exposing pseudo Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little or a lot at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. And if you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, or the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro. I said tweet, not tweak, right? Tweet. Anyway, uh, I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your website that serves podcasts of choice. Again, of choice can apply to multiple things. Anyway, I'm rambling. So, if you liked it, also tell friends, family, and two random people that you may never meet in real life.